You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, we go inside the huddle with Eric Einhorn, artistic director of Onside Opera, America's leading presenter of site-specific operas in non-traditional venues. Onside just celebrated their 10th anniversary. We'll find out how they plan to use all of the aluminum gifts they received in their upcoming production of Il Tabaro. And then, so what is your worst onstage nightmare? You prepared the wrong piece? You missed your entrance because you were still in the dressing room. That's right, it's the annual Halloween Spooktaculum. <laughs> Plus in the two-minute drill, the shameful tradition of blackface is back in the news. That's right, folks. In the year of our Lord, 2022, somehow we are still debating this as opera companies wonder where are all the new audiences Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Scary Stitcher and Spooky Spotify. You click follow on Paranormal (laughs) Apple Podcasts. You hit the plus sign. (laughs) Stay with me. I'm working very hard. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot take, operaboxscoregmail.com. You'll get a boogeyman beer coaster and a lycanthropic <laughs> lapel pin. I, I, I can't do this anymore. Oliver Camacho, it's great to see you. I'm the... back after my one week of not having to be on the show. Boy, <laughs> good for you. I, I really used that Monday. Your, your therapist-directed uh, week <laughs> exactly. off. Yeah, I, I, I tried to quiet quit on you guys, but um, <laughs> I'm back. Yeah. Uh, Weston Williams, there he is. Yeah, I, I ain't no quitter. I've been on and I'm staying on. That's a, that's a promise. Here's what's important about the last week in sports is that we just narrowly avoided the collision course of the Yankees and the Phillies ending up in the World Series. You know, that would have been one of those matchups, which when I was a child growing up in, in Ann Arbor, of course, Ohio State and Michigan State, our two rivals would play each other. Who did you want to win? Well, you wanted the stadium to just like blow up and everybody to die. It was a joke. That's the same thing with the Yankees and the Phillies playing each other. Like nothing good would have come of that. Luckily, the Astros are back to their cheating ways and they beat the Yankees. We'll see if they can go the whole way through the playoffs and win the whole thing without losing a single game. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Eric Einhorn is the co-founding general and artistic director of On-Site Opera, the country's only opera company dedicated to site-specific productions. His immersive works have performed to sold-out houses and critical acclaim since the company's founding in 2012. Eric has created partnerships with venues and institutions throughout New York City that range from community gardens, historic homes, restaurants, the American Museum of Natural History, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He joins us from New Jersey. Eric, welcome back to Opera Box Score. It's been a minute. It has. Thanks very much, guys. Great to see you all. Great to see you again. I think in that introduction, you basically said everything that needs to be said. So thanks for joining us, Eric. Have a great night. (laughs) Yeah, this is fantastic. Eric, I want to get to the why behind Onside Opera all those years ago. Why would you, when I read about the logistics of your productions, and frankly, I just want <laughs> ugly cry, why would you do this? Can I can I give a really banal answer and say I was bored? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's valid, artistically speaking. Right. Well, what happened was I um, I had been working for a while at a um, a well respected, um, a very large opera company in New York City um, on the staging staff for a very long time, and found myself wanting for some other artistic outlets. Um, it just wasn't giving me what I wanted, and and some of the some of the work I was experiencing on the road again hadn't quite lined up with uh, with my artistic goals and. Mix that with um, a growing family at the time. My children were very young, and being on the road um, and the glamour of um, extended stay hotels just kind of wore off very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to find a way to be local 
um, and artistically satisfied at mm. the same time. And uh, also sort of budget conscious. I, I, I had this foolhardy notion that site-specific production was somehow going to be cheaper than traditional <laughs> production in that um, if I could combine my venue money and my set money, then that's a little less money I have to spend. Uh, and it turns out that's sort of true. Um, and out of that, it just sort of it, it grew out of this um, very kind of simple idea. Well, people can go to the website and see sort of the history of the company and the shows you've done and where you've done them. And George rattled off a couple of places. Um, but how do you deal with acoustics when it's an acoustic art? That was a real um, a real challenge in the beginning of the company uh, because before I was a director, I was a singer. And so I have certain... Um, certain amount of respect for for acoustics right <laughs> um, and you know and it was a real struggle because i thought with all these beautiful theaters and recital halls in new york city if people are going to come to my barber seville and it sounds like garbage um you know what's the point um hmm. but i i sort of landed on something that has that has held held me in, in a good place for a very long time and that's the value of the overall experience over the individual pieces that we think of when we go to an opera. When mm. you go to Carnegie Hall, when you go to the Met, and then now when you go um, to the new uh, home of the Philharmonic, um, who, the hall name escapes me at the moment, uh, but we've all been reading about it. Um, it's all about the acoustic. What is what is the ensemble sound like in the hall? But when you go to an on-site show, it's about um, immersion. It's about engagement. It's about being six inches from the singer's uh, maybe your back is right up against a violinist uh, in these beautiful spaces, and so the 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 sum of the parts um, is greater than those individual challenges. And there's nothing we can do. We we vet our venues. We do acoustic tests with instruments with singers before we officially sign on to venues. And we've ditched some venues because the sound just can't is is so mm. terrible. Yeah. Um, there's sort of a middle ground. There's a there's a certain um, threshold it's pretty wide of what we can tolerate um acoustics and sightline all inclusive and so it's a it's an ever-moving formula for sure i mean there are so many logistics involved but like what is the first thing that that has to meet muster is it necessarily acoustics is it just picking a, a piece that you want to direct what's the problem? yeah it's it's really story it's um for most of our history it's been piece first and then venue as we've grown, we've had some venue partners reach out to us and say, we'd love for you to do something in our space. Can you come and, and mm. look and figure it out? And so, um, and as we've grown and as, as we've um, gained a much more of a, um, a standing in the community, we have a little more leverage to go to venues and say, hey, we'd love to do something here. Can we, uh, in a way that 10 years ago, that just wasn't happening. Um, and so, but for me, it always starts with story and it always has to be about that. It's got to... The, the, the place that we go has to um, amplify, not in the literal sense, um, <laughs> the, the story that we're telling, immerse the audience in a way that they can't just go to another theater down the street and see the same sort of thing. So this is, uh, you, you are at the tail end of on-site opera's 10th anniversary season. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, how has the company evolved over these 10 years? What kind of lessons have you learned? What technology or approaches did or didn't work out? Uh, and what kind of things might you revisit in a post-pandemic world? Mm. Um, basically, what ideas are like home runs and or, or strikeouts? <laughs> um the home that's, runs. So you pick have, a question you want to answer there. Yeah, pick one. Right. I, I, I hit you with a bunch, but <laughs> that's great. Um, the home runs have definitely um, been home runs this whole time, which have been um, narrative-driven experiences with the highest quality performers, both orchestral um, and vocal and design team, all those things um, that our budget can support at the time, um, and commitment to the the process the that we've we've always operated much more like a agma signatory even though we're not um, a union company in terms of workplace rules expectations um, not overworking singers um, and that culture of care and respect has has been the sort of the grand slam of 
of what we've done. Um, and artists come back time and time again and sort of carried that message about the work that OnSite does um, uh, through the industry. Um, and that's helped um, kind mm -hmm. of spread the gospel, as it were. Um, other other things that have that have maybe almost gone out of the park because I'm I'm trying those those <laughs> yeah, things. It's a um, triple. It's a triple. It's, yeah, it's, it's right. Um, you know, integration of technology has been a big thing for us in a way that is organic to what we're doing. Um, never technology for gimmick's sake. Um, but the last time I was on this show, uh, I was talking about our Google Glass initiative. Um, oh, right. Seemed like such such a wonderful thing. I was so excited, <laughs> and, and smart glasses were the wave of the future, you know, eight <laughs> years ago. Um, and and we had a wonderful um, beta test of the technology. It was fantastic. Please, super titles that follow your eyeline around in an immersive environment, fantastic. Right. Um, then Google pulled the technology from the consumer market, mm. and the 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 mass appeal of smart glasses really has yet to catch on. Um, but that led to um, the development of a mobile app with super titles on that, which at the mm. time people wanted nothing to do with. I, I said, you know, take out your phone and look at super titles. People, you know, nasty looks and absolutely <laughs> no, no way. This is terrible. No way. Um, and now people can't get enough of it. So it's, yeah. it's such a strange thing to kind of watch these, these things happen. Um, if, or if not, the audience is ready to receive them. But let's, uh, let's touch on that. This super titles on your phone. I've not, I haven't made my decision yet about whether I want people to have their phones out in concerts. And I, I <laughs> don't like QR code programs. Uh, I feel like it gives people an excuse to be on their phone when there is an artist up there trying their damnedest to communicate and to do something. And uh, it can, it can lead to laziness. I feel in terms of engagement. I see your point, um, but what really what really hit me one day um, in that venerated um, theater in New York that I used to work at, um, I was sitting in the back of the house and watched the performance um, on, on performance duty. And so I was in this little viewing booth and I had a view of the entire orchestra section. And every single moment that there was a pause or a scene change or anything, the auditorium lit up with cell phones. And I mm. thought, you know... Yeah. Why, why fight this? People yeah. are going to take them out anyway. Mm. And it's a bit, it's for me, it's a bit like um, less than perfect acoustics in the venue. There are, what are the hills that I personally am willing to die on? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, honestly, that the cell phone solved two problems for me. One, to the, to the digital program front, it saves me hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in printing costs. And the the mobile super titles when when you are dealing with three sixty staging, all I have to do is have an, a laptop and a hotspot to have super titles, as opposed to mm -hmm. yeah once or twice I've actually done projected titles, and mm -hmm. you know the the complaints I got were oh I can't see them because right. the action's everywhere. So in an, in an effort, and I'm not saying cell phone titles work for every company, absolutely not. Um, that's why I'm saying for us, the technology application has to be intrinsic to the thing that we're trying to do. Okay, and so, so there... it's the it's the best solution until the Google Glasses come back. Honestly. Exactly, hundred <laughs> percent. So hundred percent. You know, storefront opera is a thing in Chicago, mm -hmm. and um, I think that there's been some experimentation with on with doing things that are site specific. Do you have any advice for you know what are things that just work? Like, you know, some seasons, we just talked to Anthony Beresi from Opera Southwest last mm -hmm. week. And you know, he talks about their, you know, their DEI initiatives and they're like trying to, you know, develop their brand and what shows they feel like they have to do and what shows are like for the young artists so that the young artists always get something. But they know that in their season, there's got to be a Carmen. There's got to be a Turandot, you know? Right. Um, what is the thing in an on-site season that is like, okay, well, this is the one that like people are just going to get it, you know? You know, I am so lucky in that I, I don't have those constraints that mm. because I'm in New York, which is a positive and a negative, being being a small player in New York is not always easy on many fronts. Um, New York, not unlike Chicago, is a really expensive city. Um 
so that has its uh, has its difficulties. But because there is this huge amount of culture and opera in New York, there's something like 30 or 40 small opera companies in New York City in the New York Opera Alliance alone. And then there's the Met, and then there's the current iteration of City Opera. There's so much to choose from. People, a lot of people in New York go to Philly for Opera Philadelphia. Um, and so there is so much. And so I am not tied to that obligation of, oh, well, my audiences need a Carmen because there's no Carmen in this city without me. Um, what mm. I give <laughs> uh, and what OnSite gives the audiences, um, again, is sort of a a diverse repertoire. And we try really hard um, in our in our current model, which is three productions a season, um, to, to really show a wide range of work. Um, we've been on a heavy um, uh, commissioning spree recently. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we were on sort of a one a year track. Um, we're slowing down a little bit, but we've to date we've commissioned four pieces and we have two more in the pipeline. Um, but and that started because initially we didn't think we we had the capacity to do it. Then we we grew and we were able to take it on. But what the company started as was reinterpretations of pre-existing repertoire, whether it was Paisiello or Gershwin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a while until we did actually we actually did something that anybody could see somewhere else. Um, I think Johnny Skiki might be the first time this last spring that we did something that was, I guess, I guess I'm all in the night visitors was a big, was a big one we did in 2018. But other than that, um, the, the, we were doing those pieces where if God forbid we, you know, a singer got sick, there was nobody in this hemisphere who had ever sung the role before, <laughs> right? Um, which comes with its own problems. So we get to really choose. And it's a little harder because it's not just, oh, we have our three slots in the theater. What production are we going to do? What are we going to rent? Those things that other companies deal with. Um, we have to find the right space that's available at the right time for the right price. So it's a, it's a really a movable feast. Eric, it's our Halloween spooktacular. What is your living nightmare? Like when you're in production... What haunts you in the wee hours of the morning about the latest on-site production? Wow. I can see the one. sweat through the... So the, man, the, man, the man is like getting sweaty right now. This is a radio show, right? Not, <laughs> nobody's going to see me, right? Um, there are just so many things. This um, So much of our partnerships with venues rely on trust and what we believe is very well spelled out understanding of of um, our use of the space and how long mm, we're sure. staying there and things like that. And there have been times, luckily not too many, but it is a recurring anxiety nightmare that <laughs> I show up to the venue for like tech day two and <laughs> there's something else happening in the space. You can't uh. be in there. There's a bar mitzvah happening. There's a something. Um, we were at a venue once where we were supposed to it was it was a really big promenading production around these expansive grounds of a of a historic estate, and we get there for load in, um, and there's a Netflix show shooting. <gasps> yeah. Oh that no. That basically killed ninety percent of the venue. Yeah. Oh no. That's, and that's... what are you gonna do? You're gonna tell Stephen King, who's like supervising the shoot of his <laughs> TV show, he has to leave because you have an opera to load in? No. <laughs> so. Just you tell know, him it's we, tell him it's the opera version of The Shining. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Um, so it's the name of the game is um, is nimbleness and agility. Um, and because uh, we are relatively young, and each venue is is different and presents its own challenges, we while we have some processes in place that we do from show to show, everything is different, and we kind of explode it all every time to figure out how to best maneuver each particular space. Well, you said like you are a young company, but you've been around for 10 years now. That's mm-hmm. enough to get some roots in and to like mm-hmm. uh, develop, you know, a lot of procedures uh, for this sort of thing. So what to you, what would you like the next 10 years to be? Is there like a, a ceiling on the creativity of what you want to do, what you can do? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as I told people um, who I sat with probably seven or eight years ago who asked me that same question or actually told me <laughs> there would be a, there would be a ceiling to creativity. Um, I say, Hey, look at me now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, at, look at what we're doing. Um, you know, no, no, there is no ceiling. It, it is, it is as, 
um, endless as one's imagination, mm. um, truly. And as the city itself keeps kind of regenerating, um, there's always opportunity for something, you know, that historic properties are being um, renovated and refurbished. Mm. Um, new parks are going up. You know, we we did a concert on this place called Little Island um, two summers ago, uh, which was a brand new park that they built in the middle of the Hudson River. It wasn't mm. there three mm. years ago. Mm. Now it is. So, you know, vent, things things come up. And um, again, for us, it's all about the, the conversations have gotten more expansive, um, much to the earlier question of like the things that you want to, the pieces that you want to do or the kinds of stories that you want to tell or the kinds of voices you want to um, raise up with whatever opportunity you can. Um, I take this position that I'm in incredibly seriously in, in knowing the kinds of opportunities that I can provide. Yeah. And from the beginning, um, you know, the, the DEI conversation has been ingrained into what we do, um, which, which, not to not to pat on side on the back, but it's <laughs> it is something that um, you know even in various internal audits of our of our casting and our hiring processes, yes, that we've we've made missteps, we've grown, we've changed processes very, various ways, but um, you know the 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 feedback has been good in that the, the 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 work has been there the whole time, and it's just been a matter of course, just to sort of mm. bring those. And you you still have to do the last scene from Aida from inside of a carsophagus or whatever. Eric, we're going to wrap it up. You're a dad. The company is ten. So, what similarities does Onside have with a ten year old? <laughs> well, you know when you're when you're a parent and your kid hits double digits, there's this disbelief. How did how how are they this old all of a sudden? Um, how am I this old? How can I have a ten year old? Um, and you know, a ten year old is that wonderful mix of maturity, but still a whole lot of fun. Very playful. Um, you don't always know what you're going to get. There's going to be some uh, some uh, hard days. You know, a ten year old can still throw a really good tantrum. Um, <laughs> so you, get, you just got to watch out. But you know, you're you just take pride in in um, you know being able to have like an adult conversation with your kid at ten um, in a way that at nine or eight you can't, and that's sort of what I feel like onsite is. We have we have grown out of the 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 grassroots company. We've been around for a decade, um, and um, a you know a leader in this format um, for for a long time, and so um, f for from. 11 years old to 20 and beyond, you know, the hope is continued growth and in a way that is meaningful um, to the company, keeping close to the to the to the kernel of uh, storytelling above all. Eric Einhorn is the co-founding general and artistic director of Onsite Opera. OSopera.org is where you can learn more. They have a fantastic 11th season coming up. Eric, so great to hang out with you again. Thank you all so much. This is fantastic. Eric Einhorn, so great to have him back on the show, especially after the Google glasses <laughs> debacle. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow Apple Podcasts. Just hit the plus sign. Fantasy football update from Tobias Wright. We win again. Amazing. Bar We're unstoppable. Happening like our, the our tide is rolling. Scoring negative points. Guess what? So um, we we will win this. The last game of this week is tonight. It's the Bears at New England. That's going to put us at six and one on the season, <sighs> solidly in first wow. place in the league. Larry Brownlee's in Chicago. Maybe he brought the belt. <laughs> I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it from him. Chalk talk. It's the Halloween spooktacular. <laughs> so look, being at the performing arts, it's no walk in the park. Lots of stuff can and does go wrong. Horribly wrong. But what happens when it goes really wrong? Like Halloween style scary wrong. Here's some of our team's biggest nightmares brought to life. I don't know who's daring to go first. They're 
<laughs> tale of horror and intrigue. I think it should be you, George. Short personal story. So in 2009, when I was in graduate school, I was the assistant to the director uh, of a production at the Metropolitan Opera. It was Lucia with Anna Netrebko and Rolando Villazon. Is that the nightmare? Uh, Anna Netrebko? That was part of No, no. She was, she was, she was lovely. Was then. she in blackface just for the heck of it? <laughs> she, but here's the thing. So Viazon had been having vocal issues from 2007 and into 2008. But it was during, just like uh, Eric mentioned early on in the show, I had to go to the productions and kind of watch performances and send notes back to the director just as like a, a personal favor. It was in um, Sula Tomba that Viazon's voice cracked. And I don't mean like he missed a note. Like if you've ever watched pro football and you watch a play and the quarterback injures their knee and you watch it and you think, you know what? The human knee should not go that direction. And then you kind <laughs> of like throw up in your mouth a little bit. When you heard Viazon's voice go snap, crackle, pop, Oof. you knew something was horribly, horribly wrong. He would go Oof. on to have surgery to remove a congenital cyst on his vocal cords. He wouldn't sing for almost a year. Mm. And even worse, he would become a stage director. <laughs> the worst thing you can become, right, George? His first production was in 2011. It was a Verter in Lyon. But boy, when you heard that voice implode, nobody in that theater moved a muscle. I mean, if you, I mean, that's the thing about Viazone. He has always been such a generous artist, so committed to the drama of the moment. Yep. And yep. that that famous recording of him and Natrepko in the Salzburg, the Willie Decker Traviata, just go right to the gambling scene. Just listen to him, you know, throw money at Anna Natrepko and say that she's a whore. Um, that singing he does there in that one uh, Ogni Speranza, I forget what, what the words are like, but he's literally yelling at her. He stops singing at one point. He just starts yeah. yelling. And it's like, it's horrifying to hear it, but it's so right for that moment. But it's like, oh, please don't, don't do that to your yeah, voice. It, you know? It's kind of like late Dietrich Fischer D. Scout. It's a similar sort of, uh, you brutalize the voice a little bit for the drama and, you know, at what cost, you know? Who else has a horrible story to tell? I am, as some of you know, uh, a has-been singer. Drink? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I still have those nightmares of having to, for whatever reason, fill in for, uh, you know, another singer. And it's, like, not my fock. Like, I have to, like, <laughs> get up there and sing whatever lucia and i know it you know right, uh, right. but i also have those nightmares where i'm scheduled to sing and i hand my music to the pianist and for whatever reason it's in the wrong key and i know from the onset it's like oh this is going to be bad like i have to figure out how i'm going to fake those notes because uh, this is not my key uh, but there are some real uh, nightmares that have happened in performance. And one story that maybe you've never heard of before, but has now become legend, is when pianist, the Portuguese uh, Mozartian specialist, Maria João Pires, uh, was doing, a, I guess, a series of concerts in Amsterdam. And Ricardo Chailly was conducting. And I'm going to let Ricardo take over the story right here. She was shocked because she was expecting us to play another concerto. So when I started the first bar of the D minor concerto, she kind of jumped and panicked like, uh, like, uh, like an electric shock, I think. And she couldn't, she couldn't uh, consider even moving ahead playing, you know. And then, then we talked a moment and she told me I was expecting to play a completely different piece. I do what I can do if I remember. And the miracle is that she has such a memory that she could, within a minute, switch to a new concerto without making one mistake. Imagine, I mean, like you have to watch this video. 
she's just there and she's like just looking at him. It's like, wait a second. That's not the concerto no. that I was playing today. But somehow her muscle memory from having played the D minor just kicked in and she just knew it. She's like looking at, at the keys. Okay, I think this is how it goes. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and apparently she got through it. So that is legend. Uh, one more story I'd like to share. And this is uh, a nightmare story from Luciano Pavarotti. I always dream to be in my dressing room preparing myself with on my underpants and, and listen to the orchestra beginning the piece of music would just precede my aria. <laughs> of course that never happened, it was always a dream until last year. <laughs> last year I was with my underpants and I hear that the orchestra begin, I said, I said, what is that idiot doing? He's coming here with a dress general tape to scare all of us, and they go on like that. And all suddenly, the stage director come in and said, Mr. Pavarotti, come And why nobody of you, 3,000 people who work in this theater, don't tell me that it's beginning at 7.30 instead of 8 o'clock? I mean... <laughs> so I guess what happened is they had to like just like stop the opera. They closed the curtain, <laughs> went backstage and got him and start the aria over <laughs> again. Yeah. You do what you have to do. Oh, God. I, I feel like it's so interesting with opera and classical music in general, because I feel like there can be this veneer of like professionalism on it mm-hmm. sometimes that uh, really doesn't apply if you dig it in all to the to the history of it. Um I was trying to think of like some sort of famous, you know, nightmare scenarios that would keep me up at night. And I kept running across Mozart of all people. Of course, the, he famously uh, uh, wrote, was it the Overture to Don Giovanni, the morning of, you know, uh, and just like just things that stress me out on a very visceral level. Um, but I ended up going on like this, like a uh, rabbit hole of research. Um, surrounding the circumstances of the writing of the Requiem, uh, which, if you've seen Amadeus, as we all know, it was the it was commissioned by Salieri in a mask who later murdered him. But that's not actually what happened. <laughs> um, I, I I think it's really interesting because it points to something really. Uh, I think, deeply embedded in classical music, which is the question of patronage. Who gets to own and produce and put on your works, right? Um, because, uh, so, so let me paint the, the picture here. Mozart is, uh, in his sort of later days as a composer, he's uh, he's sort of finishing up Clemenza di Tito, uh, is about to start working on uh, uh, Magic Flute. He's not doing well financially at all. He hasn't been for some time. Uh, so when someone comes to his door, uh, who is uh, very intimidating, dressed all in gray, and uh, yeah. um, offers him an anonymous commission for a requiem, he's like, yeah, sure. But this wasn't a normal uh, commission. Uh, uh, after some digging, you find out that the commissioner of the requiem is the Count Franz Walzeg, um, whose uh, wife, Anna Prenner von Flamberg, had recently died. Um, he never remarried. He was very attached to her. So he wanted, you know, uh, sort of the best of the best to write a requiem for her. Um, he was, uh, Walzeg was an amateur musician uh, who, kind of like me, had like a collection of a bunch of instruments he kind of played. Uh, he had at least one piano, a couple of horns and bassoons. Um, uh, he played the cello, I believe, uh, at one point. Uh, he had he had a few of, uh, things lying around his his big old mansion. Uh, uh, and uh, there's a, a quote here from a musician and teacher, Anton Herzog, who is writing about him, uh, who says, Quartets were played every week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, three full hours each time. And on Sundays, theater pieces were performed in which the Count himself and the Countess and her sister as well took part and all the clerks and officials of the whole numerous staff of servants also had to play role roles each according to his abilities um and he hired these uh um these these great musicians uh local musicians to help play the stuff um where's the jump scare man let's go here's the jump scare the jump scare is plagiarism (laughs) (laughs) so one of the things the count had in his collection that historians have found 
are all of these handwritten manuscripts, uh, mostly in his own hand, um, which are, you know, any, anything from string quartets to popular pieces of the day um, by by uh, all manner of, you know, important composers. But here's the thing. They didn't have the composer's names on them. <laughs> um, and this is what he was planning to do with Mozart. He wanted to commission Mozart to write a requiem that he would then take credit for. As a matter of fact, uh, part of the contract he had with Mozart, which is apparently a standard contract he had with any composer who did this, was that uh, he would give them, you know, a reasonable amount of money uh, on the condition that they never say uh, that they actually wrote the piece. They shouldn't, they're not able to publish it, not able to play it anywhere else. And that's just the thing. And, uh, and uh, a lot of composers didn't even know who it was who was commissioning these pieces. He, he sent uh, people in his uh, place like this uh, gray messenger who was probably Franz Anton Leitgeb um, to uh, get this spooky commission going. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, Mozart, you know, uh, starts writing the Requiem. Uh, it's one of his masterpieces. And then he goes and dies. Right. Whoops. Um, but uh, here's the thing. Because it happened when he died stories start coming up about it. People who are in his circle start talking about how he was oh, writing boy. a requiem. Uh, Costanza Mozart, uh, um, uh, his wife, uh, she was uh, really invested in getting the money from the uh, from uh, the count. So she made sure that it was completed by uh, uh, Mozart's student, Zussmeier, um, but did not tell... Uh, the count that it was anything other than mostly completed by Mozart, whereas in reality, it, uh, a, a lot of the music is Zussmeier's. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, it's like deception on deception uh, in order to get this money. As a matter of fact, uh, Zussmeier at one point uh, uh, had the had the requiem performed, uh, presumably as his own work, uh, and uh, although we're not sure about that historically. Um, and, uh, and the count of course has it performed for, uh, the anniversary of his wife's death and, uh, and, and, um, and everyone by this point is like, this is, you're writing like a Mozart level here. And we're all hearing that Mozart was working on a requiem. So, so the count's like, no, 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 no. I was getting music lessons from Mozart. Uh, or he would say like, I would send like pages to Mozart and he'd improve, approve them. Like no one was really buying it. Uh, so he eventually sort of like, you know, phased out the requiem, got really quiet about it. The, and the truth about the requiem wasn't really known for uh, a long time until Costanza was going through to try to, uh, publish a lot of Mozart's work in order to, you know, preserve his music for posterity and to, you know, make sure she had money to live. Uh, and she and um, she kind of spilled the beans a little bit. She didn't reveal exactly who it was. But once the count heard that this was uh, going on, that there was that it might be published, he sent a lawyer to her to tell her, hey, I still have the right, the sole rights to uh, to, to this piece. You can't go around telling everybody uh, and performing it it was it, it, so that this this whole like legal drama wrapped up in this one piece which is so fascinating about death yes that's about death crazy. yes so it's halloween halloween because again you know this plagiarism is the spooky part but also the spooky part is having to work for a living am i right folks it uh and it i think it but i think this the really scary thing to me is like if mozart had lasted just a little bit longer it is entirely plausible that uh, Valzeg might have uh, taken the Requiem uh, and uh, performed it a few times during his lifetime. And then after he died, it could have gone into complete obscurity. We might never have heard it if it was not for the untimely death of Mozart. And it's all because of a one rich guy who was an impulsive liar. And if it, that isn't the state of of classical music patronage these days i don't know what is <laughs> all kinds of that's like the psychological spooky oliver's got the nightmares on stage you can insert your own like german euro trash production here <laughs> you know like any there's been plenty of productions out there with like crazy nudity and sex i remember seeing the barry kosky production of ruzalka at the kovisha opera where like drink 
the uh uh what's the name of the main witch um jesse uh jesse baba i, I don't remember that right when basically she like after Rosalba becomes a um mermaid and to reverse her back to human she basically performs like open spinal surgery on her oh like, yeah rips i remember out her that spine. that is horrifying <laughs> so that was that was really <laughs> gross that's like one of the few times watching a show drew and i was just like this is Man, this is nasty. Good old Barry Kosky. <laughs> you can let us know on a voice memo or an email what your spooky, scary, sick Halloween opera story is. Operaboxscore@gmail.com. Again, get the uh, OBS beer coaster. Not like you're going to feel like drinking after that, or your, <laughs> your OBS lapel, but just don't draw your own blood with it. But you share your hot take. Two minute drill. Let's get down to it. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Now that's spooky. Following the release of images from a rehearsal of Aida at Teatro Real, Opera Wire reached out to the company to ask whether the production would be employing blackface makeup. Teatro Real responded that it was, quote, banishing the practice altogether. In the production of Aida, which the Teatro Real will premiere on October 24th, blackface, theatrical makeup used to represent a black person, is not used or performed on any of the performers in the show. Everyone appears in their actual skin tone, end quote. However, Jamie Barton, appearing as a Mneris in the same production, posted a picture of herself on Instagram, which included a braided wig, which drew objections as a less obvious form of blackface. Barton wrote, while I didn't design the wig, I knew in my gut that it couldn't be right, and I still sat in the makeup chair and let them pin it on my head, and I still took a photo of myself smiling in it. My privilege swallowed up my courage. She added that Teatro Real had agreed to replace the wig, saying, quote, I screwed up. Thank you for calling me on it. In contrast, tenor Peter Bachawa, who also stars as Radames in the production, is speaking out regarding the scandal that was at the Arena di Verona. In a recent interview, he said, quote, I absolutely agree with what the great mezzo Grace Bumbry wrote on social media when she says that what really matters is the credibility of the character. It seems to be a ridiculous controversy because what we are doing is art. We are artists and it is not correct to read a story that takes place in Verdi's time with today's eyes. After declining to participate in an anti-Ukrainian propaganda concert, conductor Yuri Kerpatenko was shot dead in his home by Russian soldiers. According to the culture ministry in Kiev, the concert was intended by the occupiers to demonstrate the so-called improvement of peaceful life in Kherson. Masks are no longer required in New York City schools, gyms, taxis, and most theaters, but a night at the opera or the ballet still involved putting on a proper face covering until last week. Several of the city's leading performing arts organizations, including the Met, Carnegie Hall, New York Philharmonic, and the New York City Ballet, announced that masks would now be optional, citing demands from audience members and a recent decline in COVID cases. Said Peter Gelb, the time has come to move on. The Wexford Festival Opera has named Ethna Ryan 2022's Volunteer of the Year. The award was voted on by fellow volunteers, the board and the staff of the festival. Ryan had been a volunteer for over 20 years, selling programs at evening operas and working hospitality roles, like looking after festival guests and friends. Angelina Jolie will star as American-born Greek opera singer Maria Callas in director Pablo Larraín's next film, Maria. The upcoming movie will be based on true accounts and tell the, quote, tumultuous, beautiful, and tragic story of the life of the world's greatest opera singer, relived and reimagined during her final days in 1970s Paris. As you might expect, the pro and anti-Angelina talk is just about as inflamed as the political landscape for the midterms for 2022. In trade news, Opera Europa has appointed Karen Stone as its new director. She takes over from Nicholas Payne, who led the advocacy organization since 2003. Stone recently retired from Theater Magdeburg, where she was the intendantin for 13 years. Then, over to England, English National Opera announced that Stuart Murphy, current chief executive of ENO and the London Coliseum, will leave the company after his five-year contract comes to an end this April. 
more trade news, Czech conductor and my future husband, Jakub Rusha, has been named the music director of the Royal Opera House. The current director of opera, Albert Mir, said that everyone at the house had, quote, been hugely impressed by not only his superlative music and theater making, but also by the generosity and warmth of his personality. That's what his Tinder profile says. <laughs> and in Italy, uh, the Teatro Reggio di Torino will replace Sebastian F. Schwartz with the new artistic director, Cristiano Sandri, in 2023. On the disabled list, Zubin Mehta has canceled a Christmas concert in a production at Teatro alla Scala due to health issues, and Grace Bumbry has been hospitalized following a stroke. The legendary mezzo-soprano is currently in recovery. Our best wishes to Maestro Meta and Miss Bumbry. Exit stage right, soprano Joanna Simon has died at 86. Simon was known for her range of material and willingness to take risks on contemporary composers. She was also the sister of 70s pop singer Carly Simon. And on this day, October 24th in 1697, it was the first performance of André Campra's La Rope Galante. In 1737, Rameau's opera Castor et Pollux premiered at the Academy of Music in Paris. In 1882, operetta composer Emrich Kalman was born in Hungary. In 1885, Johann Strauss Jr.'s Gypsy Baron premiered in Vienna. On this day in 1910, Victor Herbert's operetta Naughty Marietta premiered in Syracuse, New York. In 1913, Tito Gobbi was born in Bassano del Grappa. In 1921, Sena Juranac was born in Bosnia. In 1925, Luciano Berio, one for, one for Weston, uh, was born <laughs> in Italy, in Onelia, in Italy. 1929, another one for George, I mean for Weston. Uh, George, <laughs> George Crumb, George doesn't care about it. It's for both George, of us, because yeah, no. George, George is all around. George Crumb was born. They all know each other. In 1929 in West Virginia. Happy birthday to American soprano Cheryl Studer, born this day in 1955. And in 1994, on October 24th, Harrison Burt Whistle's The Second Mrs. Kong premiered at Glyndebourne, Weston's favorite opera. And that's your two minute drill. Just a little bit of Joanna Simon singing the Abanera from a concert in 1960. I did not know about Joanna Simon, but now I feel like I should learn more about her, especially mm-hmm. since she was uh, the sister of Carly I Simon. I love this so. quote that she, that she said. She said, when Carly, meaning her sister, when Carly first became successful, I, envy, I envied her first $200,000 check, but those feelings lasted for 20 minutes and I didn't dwell on them. I knew it was a given in the operatic world that very few achieved that kind of success. I I never expected it, so I wasn't disappointed. Mm, yeah. Low yeah. expectations, high hopes. What a great way to go through life, especially if you're going to be a sister to Carly Simon. So as we were preparing to record today, um, Jamie Barton had the courage and like just she knows how to handle these things like she Mm -hmm. realized that she made a mistake you know she's in this production of of aida and like she posts a picture of herself wearing the the wig that they made for her and yeah and like she was called out by her followers and she's like oh crap i didn't even think about that you know and i think that's how you handle it you realize like you know we're all learning here we're all trying to be more sensitive and this was you know she's making her role debut as uh amneris and she just got excited and didn't think about it so kudos to her for you know uh admitting uh that she made this mistake and actually kudos to teatro real for also understanding oh we didn't even think about that yeah that's also offensive so yeah i remember the arena de verona's like pushback like you know we're still gonna do bat blackface forever you yeah because <laughs> it's part of the production yeah oh god and then of course uh bachala 
doing his whole um, oh, come on, man. statement. You know, I am, the good program, Lord. Dude. I am such a fan of his singing, but uh yeah, it was very disappointing. Yeah, it's 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 always so disappointing because uh, one of the quotes that we didn't mention is like is like, uh, well, uh, if you think about it, Shakespeare is racist. Then and we're like, yeah, it's like yes, he was. Shakespeare was racist. Yeah, like, exactly. Like like this is this is the thing. Like we do not have to preserve every single aspect of opera um, from the beginning of time. We don't have to do that. If it's bad, we can get rid of it. I remember, um, I forget where I saw it on the internet. Uh, maybe it'll come to me by the end of the episode. Um, but it was, I think it was a TikTok I saw where someone said, uh, where someone was like, uh, I was like, oh, uh, someone was like, blackface is an operatic tradition. And uh, they said, well, yeah, so is castration. You know, <laughs> we, we, we don't need to keep everything. We don't need to keep that. We are beyond this. We don't need to keep this going. I think that this, uh, uh, that, um, you know, mistakes will happen and sometimes we will have to point out those mistakes and sometimes those that will feel heated that will feel like you're being attacked but it's a good thing it needs to happen in order to weed out the racism at the core of these performances so right now uh this announcement about the maria Callas movie is still very fresh and um yeah all these singers that are in my you know circle are all up in arms why can't you get an opera singer to do it? it's like you know what Let's make the movie and let's get people to see it. And how are you going to do that? You cast Angelina Jolie. Angelina Jolie. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to be fine. I doubt she's going to have to sing, you know, in it. And, uh, yeah. you know, they're, if they use recordings or if they find an opera singer to dub, you know, the, to be dubbed in, great. But let's actually put somebody in this thing that people will learn about. Let Mary the Callis, opera you know? singers do the singing. Let yeah. the movie people do the stuff on screen. Like, it's not... I mean, I think yeah. that Jolie has the temperament and like the charisma. The so, look, yeah. the look, yeah, oh my and, gosh, and yeah. that too. Yeah. Just... <laughs> so, Opera Box Score has made its official announcement. Uh, we've come down on the <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, um, Rusa takes over from Papano yeah. at the Royal Opera House. I, I mean, this guy the is end want- of an era. This guy is wanted everywhere. I mean, right now in Chicago, they're, you know, they're by you specifically. Well, they're looking around because <laughs> Ricardo Muti is about to step down. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Um, he's a contender, and I wonder if that makes him less likely now that he has his big job in England. It would, ha- you know? it would have to be. I, d- yeah. I don't know how you could. I mean, but <laughs> he's young. I mean, he can be- go back and forth. You know, famous last words, though, right? It's like all these man. It's it's a lot at the top, right? There's there's never space for many people to do many different things. It's always one person. Doing anyway, I'm that. I'm a fan and I did not know that he was gay, but now that he's considered for this job, he clearly is. So that just made my chances a little bit better. <laughs> Come to Chicago's, uh, Chicago, become CSO director, yeah. just so uh, you and Oliver can, you know. Yeah, I'll take together. care of the kids while you go It'll be perfect. jetting around. So, you know. One person who will not be missed, I can tell you, is Stuart Murphy, the current chief executive at English National Opera, and also who runs the London Coliseum, which is the building which ENO and many others appear in. Why? Is because Murphy kind of single-handedly over the last five years has really made it so that the vast amount of repertoire is musical theater and that ENO has fewer days on stage. There are more touring productions, national tours going into the Coliseum. It means less onstage rehearsal time for ENO. He has managed to piss off many people within the organization. I can guarantee you people are going to be saying, don't let the door hit you on the way out when his contract comes to an end. And did somebody have a take on Peter Gelb um, and the mask announcement? Or the, what's this, we have to remember his title, the Moretti... The Moretti Shram. (laughs) Well, I saw saw this. Peter Gelb says, the time has come to move on. I thought he was talking about himself. Oh. (laughs) And I got really excited. And then I realized he was talking about masks and no masks. And like the scariest thing of all halloween so far is has to do with masks and not wearing a mask just yeah. quickly before we go to good call back i have to say that uh l'europe galante uh is an opera that i have appeared in and it's it's a <gasps> it's a bop uh i wish that we would have more productions of that show it's so much fun uh but i doubt that we will so. I wish we had more productions of Harrison Burt Whistles, the second <laughs> Mrs. Call. Me too, George. Me too. Let's wrap this show up. 
Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. To wrap up the Halloween spooktacular of 2022, Oliver Camacho. Man, I wish I was on the episode last week just so I could congratulate uh, Florentine Opera in Milwaukee for assembling an incredible cast for their Romeo and Juliet, which uh, closed last weekend. Um, Emily Pogorelt's friend of the show as mm. Juliet and mm. Duke Kim, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. They were so, so good. They are both destined for absolute greatness. Uh, I just hope they're listening and they know how much I, I stand. I also want to mention so that, that I saw um, the movie Tar. Mm. And apparently I'm canceled, so I'm a bad call because I liked it. <laughs> Uh, there's like this. Whole... You're the first person I've come across who's liked that movie. Really? Oh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess uh, the new purity test is disliking Tar, and I failed <laughs> uh, because the character of Lydia Tar, played brilliantly by Kate Blanchett, is so repulsive and represents so much of the patriarchy and all that's wrong with classical music. Even though she's a lesbian and she's a woman, so she already is not the patriarchy. But um, yeah, she shuts down a young conductor of color uh, in one of the opening scenes. And uh, I guess that was enough to like, you don't, you can't like this movie because of how that young man is treated or young person, pan, he's pangender or they're pangender, how that young person is treated by the character of Lydia Tarr. Uh, if you appreciated uh, what she had to say to them, then you're a monster too. So I'm a monster, everybody. Just so you know. <laughs> Perfect for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> Weston Williams. Well, I have a, one more uh, spooky story that we didn't fit into the Halloween special. It's not really a story. Um, when Oliver was uh, pitching this year's uh, Halloween spooktacular, he was like, think of like nightmares on stage. Like, what if something happened? You know, what if there was like a really bad voice crack or something? So I Googled tenor voice crack. And this is the first uh, result. <laughs> I, I've deliberately like not looked at who this was because they're clear. They were clearly having an atrocious day, but you got to hear it to believe it. Take a listen. <laughs> Truly horrifying. Yikes. Yikes. My, my bad call is like Weston's Count Chocula style <laughs> Halloween accent on this episode. Roll Tide. He's dreadful. How about this? Here's a letter to the Times of London from last week. Charlotte Page writes to the paper, Dear Sir, in your hot list from mid-October for the classical recommendation, you write of Lava Lamb at the Royal Opera House, quote, Few things entertain wealthy old people as much as watching penniless young people die to Puccini. She goes on in her own words to say, as a former opera singer who spent part of her career taking opera to the provinces and to schools, she says, I know that labeling opera as something for, quote, wealthy old people risks depriving, quote, ordinary people of their right to experience beautiful music and wonderful stories in the blindly perpetrated belief that, quote, it's not for us. She says, I'm sure that you wouldn't use this sort of discriminatory language about any other art forms. It is as tired and lazy as saying that all opera singers are fat. As far as the ongoing myth that opera seats are exorbitant, the cheapest seat at the Royal Opera House for La Boheme, possibly one of the most popular and most loved shows in opera, is 82 pounds. But for a contemporary rock band, for example, the cheapest ticket is 110 pounds. And the most expensive ticket for a rock concert is double the price of the most expensive ticket for La Boheme. Mm. Ouch! <laughs> I think uh, I think she gets a uh, a free OBS beer coaster for that uh, for that letter. Should. We should invite her on. She should be the next panelist. Yeah, get rid of Matt. He's never here anyway. <laughs> that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our America's announcer. scoop scariest talk radio show. About Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. I said scoopiest because I. My brain does that sometimes. So Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow. Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com 
get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is otherworldly, Oliver Camacho. Ooh. Our audio editor is Wolfman Weston Williams. <laughs> for our guest, Merrick Einhorn, I'm ghoulish George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you call out your opera heroes on Instagram. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more ten-year-old tantrums. Join us if you dare.